Well, we're so very grateful this morning to uh, hear from Stephen Dewey, who's our Minister of Student and Youth Ministries and, uh, and Children's Ministry, and we want to uh, turn the pulpit over to him as he opens the Word of God to us. Stephen. Thank you, Joe. Good morning, everyone. It's great to, to be here and have this opportunity again this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. And we come to a magnificent passage of Scripture, um, one that terrifies me and just has opened my eyes and heart to all who God is and just reminded me much this week. Uh, I've been confronted by this passage this week, my weak self, and there's been many uh, temptations to doubt God this week that have come at us. I, I mean, just you heard of Pastor Joe praying for, for Abel and just all of that scenario. There's been a number of other hospitalizations of people at the church this week. Um, Veronica and I have heard of a, a friend of hers, a former student of hers in California, whose uh, unsaved brother died at age 27 from, from cancer and just the, the pain that that brings in their family. And there's just been so much um, going on in, in, around the world and the life of our church of difficulties, difficult circumstances, and we are often kind of left with the question of why. Why, God? And I believe it's okay to ask God why, to ask him that. We see it many times in the Psalms, Psalm 43, 2, one of the beautiful psalm, psalms that has been sung many times. Psalm 43, 2 asks the question of God, why have you rejected me? Why must I mourn being oppressed by my enemy? We can ask why. We can also plead with God for an answer. Psalm 43.3, the very next verse says, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. We can plead for an answer. But sometimes, sometimes God leaves us to, to sit there like Job with no answer, just wallowing in our pain, in our confusion. And sometimes, like with Job, those who try to help us only make things worse. It's okay to ask God why, but we need to be content with no immediate answer. His silence in responding is not a substance for doubting. Rather, God calls us to trust him and wait patiently for him to do his will. It's been well said, when, we, when you cannot trace his hand, you have to trust his heart. If you recall, uh, my last time getting to preach in early January was from the first part of Isaiah 40, Isaiah 41 through 11. We'll be picking up in verse 12 today. But our immediate context is King Hezekiah in Israel and the attacking hordes of Assyria. Assuming this chapter 40 was written after the battles of chapter 36 to 39, Assyria has recently been defeated at the gates of Jerusalem by God himself, coming down and striking 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers. We must recall, though, that even though Jerusalem itself was spared, none of the surrounding cities were. Assyria had come and had wiped out much of the countryside of Israel and Judah. It was time to pick up the pieces and find a way to move on from the death, pain, and brokenness that surrounded them. I explained last time how Isaiah chapters 40 to 66, this big chunk, this last part of the book, is equivalent to Israel what the New Testament book of Revelation is to us. 
It is a book of future prophecy, much of which, not all of it, but much of which would be directly fulfilled in Israel's Babylonian exile some 100 plus years later. The entire context of these chapters is written, is Babylonian in nature. And, and though when Isaiah wrote, Babylon was, was a, just a distant, insignificant country, it would become the main oppressor of God's people soon. And so this passage, this section, is very prophetic in nature. Uh, we considered the first 11 verses of this awesome chapter, and it all focused around verse 1. If you peek over at 40 verse 1, it says, Comfort, comfort my people says your God. We saw the need for this comfort, and we saw that God is a God of comfort. The people of Israel exiled to Babylon needed to know that God was still with them. They needed to know that God would pardon their sin. That was verse 2. They needed to know that God would come to them and meet them in person, verses 3 to 5. And we also saw that they needed to know, as we need to know as well, that God's uh, tenderly shepherds his flock. He would shepherd them tenderly. And if you recall, we saw that Jesus himself is this very shepherd. He is this very shepherd. God still had plans for Israel after their exile, and their exile to Babylon was not the end of their relationship. They needed to know that in their greatest trial, God's plan was unfolding. God still had plans for them, and it was his plan for their good. Jeremiah 17, um, 31, I have plans to, or 17, 10, I'm blanking on the verse, my bad, but I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. That's directly in this context. God had a plan. And the remnant of Israel who truly believed God were led back from exile by the likes of Ezra and Nehemiah and were restored to the land and restored to worshiping him. And so the context of comfort, comfort my people, continues into our passage today. The comfort in verses 1 to 11 focused around those who doubted God's promises to them, and today it focuses around those who doubt God's person and what he's capable of. It's just an amazing passage on, on who God is. And I, I, I wanted to focus my entire message on, on how incredibly great our God is, how incredibly great he is. And I desired to extol him for how incomparably awesome he is and just focus on that the entire time. And by his grace, we'll do that today. But it will not be the sole focus of this message as I initially thought it would be. And that's because it's not the sole focus of this text. You see, God's incomparable greatness is not left on high to be a theologically mind-blowing concept. It's not left just up here, it's supposed to affect us as we go. And so knowing God and his omnipotent works, his wisdom and power cannot be contained as merely an intellectual exercise. It cannot stay there. It must begin there, but it must not end there. And this text, this this spirit-inspired, God-breathed text will marvelously explain who God is in incredible detail And then at the end, it will explode all that doctrine into your daily life, into your trials, into your troubles, and into your unanswered prayers. This this, this amazing blessing from God even further displays his wisdom. His greatness directly affects our good. He's not just great for himself. He's great and awesome for our benefit. By his love, his greatness results in our good. 
It results in our good. The greater he is, the better it is for you and me. The better it is. And, and there's perhaps no more important text in all of Scripture than this one for knowing the greatness of our God and building up our trust in him. We'll see today in Isaiah 40, 12 through 31, that the incomparable greatness of God equips you to cease doubting and to confidently wait on him. His greatness equips you to cease doubting and to confidently wait on him. We'll first look at his greatness and then explore what that means for you and me. Let's read our text. I'll read, follow along with me, Isaiah 40, 12 through 31. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he console and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let us pray as we begin. Father God, you are so great. God, we tremble at at you, before you, the fear of you, knowing who you are, 
how great your reign is, God. And I just pray that this text would bless our hearts as, we, as you expand our, our view of who you are. God, may it, may it bless us, Lord, to live for you, to love you, to wait upon you. God, may we just see you this morning in this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we begin in verses 12 through 20 with God's incomparable works. God's incomparable works. And as we begin, I just have to, I, I, I've just been overwhelmed this week as I've studied this. I am not the man to preach this uh, just because of the nature of it. And I've never been so shooken up in my own study of a text as this one, as I, as I went through it. And it, Sam and I were talking just before the service, and he related this to Isaiah 6, and it was a perfect connection. And uh, Isaiah 6 there saw the Lord and said, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I feel the same way this morning. I feel like J.I. Packer did as he took on writing his now famous book, Knowing God. He said, As clowns yearn to play Hamlet, so I have wanted to write a treatise on God. Augustine, in his prayer, the confessions, bemoaned, What can anyone say when he speaks of you? What can anyone say when he speaks of you? Yet alas for those who are silent about you. And so while... I am a sinful man in no position to speak of God. I yet at the same time cannot keep silent about a God such as ours. He's such a great God. So let's start looking at our text, verse 12. The first thing we see is God's work. He is the creator. And the totality of creation is seen in this verse. The connection of waters and, and heavens they, they, they have the, just the full gambit of height and depth. Then you've got the latter part of the verse, dust and mountains. What could be higher than heavens and lower than the seas? What could be greater than mountains and smaller than dust? All of the created order is included here. The idea in this text, it's asking who can make such a thing? Who can create and design such a world? The idea is that no human can me even measure it, much less create it. It's talking about measurements here. Who's measured the waters, marked off the heavens with a span. If you're going to create a bench, if you're going to create a bench out of wood, you've got to measure, mark, and cut, and nail. And the same would be true of creating a world. You've got to at least be able to measure it before you can put it together. And in the rhetorical question, they, they, these rhetorical questions, they fill this text like leaves on a tree. It's then asked, who can do this? Who can create a world? Seriously, who? Whoever this is, the very first line, it says he can measure the water in the hollow of his hand. What a word picture. Just, I mean, this is, this is the hollow of one's hand. It's so small, and we, when we try and hold water in our hand, it just seeps out. We can, we can barely get anything in our hands, and yet God, God is able to hold the water of the entire earth in his hand. And I can just picture him making it and then just, pouring it out of his hand into our oceans and filling the seas, filling them with the water that he held in his hands. The next idea is marking off the heavens with a span. Now a span is half a cubit. A cubit, elbow to fingertip span, fingertip to fingertip. It's about eight inches or so. And the, the idea is that if the entire heavens were, were unwrapped, if you were to unwrap the globe and lay out the heavens, it would stretch the span of God's hand. That's how great he is in size. That's just how magnificent he is compared to what he's created. That would be like, like me unwrapping a golf ball 
and spreading out the white urethane cover across my hand. It's almost a six-inch diameter going across. That's the size of the heavens to him. A golf ball. He's that big. He's that great. Creating this world was no challenge to him whatsoever. And just the size difference calls to mind one of Dr. Seuss's books, Horton Hears a Who, where the entire world of Whoville is encapsulated in one speck of dust that resides on a purple clover flower. In this children's book, you have this massive elephant frolicking along, holding a clover, and on that clover is a dust, and on that speck of dust is an entire world of people known as the Who's. Um, but the one interesting thing is the world of Whoville is just one city. It's just one small city on that speck of dust. And imagine an entire planet. Us. All of us. To God, we're barely larger than a golf ball. And one little city like Seattle would make Whoville look gigantic. The comparison doesn't even work there because God is just so great. Now, as we're, as we're looking at these, we're not being asked to take these descriptions Literally, since God is not a physical being and does not have a physical hand per se. But Isaiah appropriately paints the picture of just how great God is in size compared to the world he's created. We're nothing next to him. Nothing. We'll be called grasshoppers pretty soon. Verse 13 and 14 continue on to show that his wisdom is beyond all others. Completely untouchable by human minds. In uh, the mythology of the Babylonians, to whom the people would be in exile soon, the creator god of their people was named Marduk, and he could not proceed with creation without considering and consulting Ea, the all-wise. Marduk needed counsel before he created anything. Well, not so with the God of Israel, the God of heaven. God's wisdom is elevated beyond all else. Who has measured, in verse 13, who has measured the Spirit is th- to ask the idea, who can gauge what the Spirit is doing? Who can gauge what the Holy Spirit is doing? The Spirit is at work in creation, which is in mind here. It's Genesis 1-2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. They were all there, the Trinity in creating. Genesis 1-26. Let us make man in our image. He did not consult anyone, as verse 14 makes so clear. Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? He needed no Ea, the all-wise. Nobody taught him. He did it all himself. Just simply consider the intricacies of the human body and what's going on inside and how he perfectly formed us to function. Think of every species of animal and their unique design perfectly complementing this world's ecosystem. One that's always blown me away since I learned this in high school chemistry was that is how every single substance on the planet shrinks from when it goes from a liquid to a solid. It shrinks, with the one exception of H2O, what we know of as water. When water freezes, it expands. Maybe you've broken a glass in your freezer before by accidentally putting water in it. It's the only thing on the entire planet that expands when freezing, and yet because of this, life on our planet is able to be sustained. Think of it. If the seas and the lakes... Uh, froze and shrank, all the ice would sink to the bottom, and before you knew it, the, entire, the ice would build up and the entire oceans and lakes and everything would be frozen. But because it, it expands when it freezes, it, it floats to the top and becomes like an igloo, and it traps in everything beneath with heat and warmth so that things can live underneath it. God thought of everything when he created. God thought of everything. His wisdom is beyond all reach. 
And that same wisdom gave us laws to live by and justice to punish the wrong. That same wisdom designed redemption for mankind who would fall into sin. And that same wisdom foreordained and engineered a salvation for all who believe in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. He did not consult with anyone. It all came from his mind. It all came from him. God cannot be compared to anyone. He is incomparable in his works. There's no one that even comes close, not even any collection of people. Look at verse 15. It begins, Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. When we empty a bucket of water, uh, little droplets remain behind. Do we care? No. Right? If we're taking a bucket of water from the place over to the trough and we slosh a little bit, like one drop falls out, do we go back and refill our bucket? No, we don't care if one drop falls out. That's the idea here. That's the idea of just, uh, it, it, it's pointless. It's wor- worthless, this one drop. And if, if God can hold all the water in the palm of his hand, all the water of our entire planet, just imagine how small a drop is to him. One drop. That's what the nations are to him. Not us individually, us collectively. We're nothing next to God. The nations are also compared to dust on the scales. So meaningless that you don't even bother to wipe it off. Not even off of a delicate scale where you might weigh gold or silver. And that's the whole point. The conglomeration of nations are as, are, as a whole are weightless and meaningless before the person of God. God is so immense against the puny backdrop of mankind. And even though we as humans are God's crowning creation that poses no limits to what our creator can do with us. Our society has become so self-focused as it rejects the thought of God's existence. Everyone out there lives for number one. Everyone out there lives for themselves. And it's been said that the church often catches the world's diseases. Let us stop thinking that life is all about us, all about our happiness, our perfect family, perfect home, perfect retirement. It's not. It's not what life's all about. It's about God's glory. It's about worshiping, loving, and serving this incredible God that blows our minds on all fronts. He's the one we must worship and serve. And speaking of worship, verse 16 moves right into that. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offering. This is referring to sacrificial worship. No spiritual actions on man's part are enough to please or placate God. Lebanon was known for its huge forests. And the idea here is if you took all of the wood and all of the animals in Lebanon and burned them, even that would not be a sacrifice enough for God. He's too great for that. Truly, even if the whole world were sacrificed to offer God the worship he deserves, it could still not be enough to worship him appropriately or to even atone for the sins of man. It cannot atone for our sins. Another reason we, people would make sacrifices But this is in stark contrast to the man, Jesus Christ, who by himself was a sacrifice enough to please and appease the Father. Christ was enough. It's often been asked, how could one man's death atone for the sin of everyone who believed? The answer is because Jesus is worth more than everyone who ever lived put together. He's worth more. Isaiah raises the problem here in verse 16, but he would answer it fully in Isaiah 53, but the perfect sacrifice, the man, Jesus Christ, who would die as the lamb to take away the sins of the world. 
Again, this is all part of God's wisdom, part of his plan. And he alone, Jesus Christ alone, is enough. Verse 17 basically restates verse 15. We must also keep in mind that our value does not come in our size, power, wisdom, or capabilities. We are less than nothing, as the verse says. Our value is not found in who we are or what we do. Our value is found in that God has chosen to redeem us. God gives you value by caring for what he created. Though insignificant next to him, we are not insignificant to him. It's not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of who he is and what he's done. What's he done? Though we rejected him by our willful sins, he's redeemed us, those who believe, by the sacrifice of his son. Let this humble you and remove all pride. You are absolutely of no worth whatsoever were your worth not given to you directly by God himself. All your worth, abilities, and wisdom lie not in your own person, but in the person of God who gave them to you. Find your worth there. Now, with all this great knowledge of God that Isaiah is giving to us, would you dare liken him to anything? That's the big question in verse 18. Verse 18 says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare him? You think it's a rhetorical question, right? The obvious answer is nothing. But then Isaiah supplies us with an answer, one of those shock, turn of a twist of a twist of the statements. He says, an idol. Wait, wait, what? Israel, how can you be so stupid? The creator God, just divine in verse 12, that you're now trying to create it like by a craftsman's hand? How stupid is this? Seeking out an idol that will not move. The very God who moves supernatural forces and a person would make an idol that specifically cannot move? What idiocy is this? And Isaiah's tone is just dripping with sarcasm and irony. He doesn't even bother to criticize the idol making. He simply describes it, defi- describes how it works. And that's enough to show its stupidity. How stupid to compare God to something designed and created by the mind of man. Well, Stephen... You might, be, might think now, we don't worship idols anymore, so this is irrelevant. Great, we've moved on from that. Well, except we worship other things now. We worship other things now. As I was studying this section of Scripture, I was at a Starbucks, the one in the Safeway one right over here. Just, I stopped and paused and looked out the window and watched the people walk by in the parking lot and the cars drive by. Everyone was headed somewhere. Everyone busy. Everyone living for something. Some passing by surely were living for their jobs, devoting everything to making money and furthering their career. Some passing by probably lived for entertainment, working, being, and doing just to get it done and go have fun. Others were moms with their children, perhaps living for them, trying to give them the best life they could. Any living for something other than God is living for an idol. Not a hand-fashioned idol, but a heart-fashioned one. The heart must worship something. Will yours worship the great God of the universe, this incomparable God who created everything by his wisdom and might? Or will you bow to an idol of your heart, like sports, money, fun, fame, or even family? Who do you worship? One is worth everything. The other, comparatively speaking, is worthless. 
like a drop in the bucket. Well, just as this section began and ended with some rhetorical questions, the next section is bookended in them as well. We come to verse 21, point two, God's incomparable reign. God's incomparable reign. Look at verse 21. He asks, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? The truth has been made known to them. They had heard it proclaimed. They had possessed this body of knowledge from the beginning of time. But would they listen? Would they listen? Isaiah's calling in, in chapter 6 reveals that he was called to a people who uh, hearing would not hear and seeing would not see. Many people will hear the truth and yet not hear the truth, if you know what I mean. Many will see but not see. And is that you, asks Isaiah, don't you know, don't you hear the things that have been told from the beginning of time? You should know the truth, Israel. You should know, and us here in this church, we should know the truth about our God. What's this truth? It's that God reigns over all the world. Those who appear to be the ones reigning actually have no reign at all. Verse 22, it says it's he, that's God, who sits above the circle of the earth. The circle refers to the concave of the sky or the horizon, explaining that God is up and outside of the world. He's not confined to it like we are. He's transcendent from time and space. He's not stuck here on this planet. I, Psalm 11:4 says, The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. Much like a fishbowl that we would stand outside and look into, God is outside of our world and he looks into it, seeing everything. What's he see? Well, not fish, but grasshoppers. We are, in comparison to God, grasshoppers. Now, before you're just insulted by that term, grasshoppers themselves are a picture of impotency, of powerlessness. Let that insult you. <laughs> they can't do anything. Israel, when they came to the, the promised land and saw the, the giants there, the sons of Anak, they said, woe is us. We are grasshoppers in their sight. A single grasshopper to a human is powerless, just like we are powerless before our God. God's power is so great. His immensity of size is displayed again in, verse 20, in the second part of verse 22. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Now, growing up as a young kid, I remember going over to someone's house that had a massive living room, massive living room, and had a really high ceiling and huge windows on one wall. During the day, the, the, the sun would just pour in through those windows and give light to the room. Um, <clears throat> but there were thick drapes on the side, thick drapes that could cover it. And these drapes were great for hide-and-seek because they went all the way to the floor and you, nobody would see your toes behind them. They were, they were just these huge, thick drapes. And, but they were also really easy to move. So you had to stand real, real still if you were behind them. You could uh, just pull on, tug on them gently and slide them all the way across the, the windows. Just like that, you could... As a little kid, even, I could tug on them and block out all the light in the room, just like that. And that's the picture Isaiah gives of God here. As the sun sets each night and the stars and the moon come out, it's as, it's as if God is effortlessly stretching a curtain over the sun. With ease, he pulls the curtain of the heavens over the sky and gives us night. This curtain goes across the sky and covers us like a tent, Isaiah says. We sit under the night sky and see the stars as if they're the roof of our tent, blanketing the sky. And every night, God stretches out that curtain 
And every morning he pulls it back to give us day. It's so easy for him. Though the sky is huge from our point of view, God is outside of it, easily closing and opening the curtain of night and day. Clearly Isaiah is using a word picture here because we know now, we know clearly the earth rotates and that's why we have night and day, right? He's using a word picture. But even thinking about it this way, just ponder how incredible it is that our earth rotates so perfectly. And as we travel around the sun, we never get too close that it burns us up or too far away that we melt. Or that we freeze. (laughs) Wrong one. That we freeze. God is continually upholding the earth with his power, giving us good and livable conditions on this planet. God reigns in power over his creation. He reigns in power over what he's created. But not only that, he reigns over pow- in power over those who reign on earth. That's what verses 23 and 24 are all about. It says, he brings princes to nothing, makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. The princes here are, would likely, uh, another way you could translate it is somebody who's invested with position and office. Somebody like presidents, like the people in the Senate. Rulers is just a straight synonym for judges. Those who make the decisions, who judge the laws. I mean, historically, and most often, princes and rulers, presidents and judges, they, they often are proud people. They often have worked hard to get there. They're proud once they're there. And they set themselves up over the nations and peoples and think they're so awesome because of their own greatness. But God has a way of humbling all men. And Isaiah uses an analogy of planting a plant in verse 24. Sometimes right after the plant's fully grown, it withers, dies, and blows away. This is how God operates with those who come to power. Veronica and I were once given an oriental lily, the kind that you would nurture for a while, give it water, and then plant it in your own yard. It was supposed to last a long time. However, within a week, half of it was dead. Just like that. I don't know if it was our fault or what, but it probably was. (laughs) Well, in the same way, as soon as a national leader is established, God can blow on him, and he too will wither and blow away. Nations are seen as a drop in the bucket, small and powerless, and so are the rulers, their rulers, in God's hand. He controls them however he wishes. Jesus can therefore say to Pontius Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Paul can say in Romans 13.1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Jesus and Paul both knew this basic truth about God, that he is powerful over rulers and nations. God's rule over earth is not an ornamental rule like a modern-day queen and king of England, but in reality, it's an executive rule. He rules by executive order, and there is no one to halt him, no one to stop him. makes us think twice about the importance of Donald Trump and, or even the Washington State Supreme Court judges who ruled against the conscience of Baronel Stutzman for refusing to create bouquets for a gay wedding. Those judges, our president, others may think highly of themselves, of their laws. They might think that they are, have been, are, are world-changing, but in reality, God has appointed them, and this text makes it clear that, that their rule is described before God as nothing, and their decisions are viewed as emptiness. Whether through death or the four-year term limits, God blows on them, and they are removed from power. Are they really in control of anything? Just think of it. In the eternal long run of God's plan, do they really have any effect in eternity, past and future? No. No, they don't. 
Yes, we should seek as Christians liberties in the U.S. Liber- uh, to, we, we don't want to see laws that go against our conscience. But no, these laws won't affect eternity. They're temporary, empty laws made by people who are considered by God to be nothing. So take comfort then in whatever is happening out there politically. God is sovereign. And whatever is now rooted will soon be uprooted by him. God's reign is truly incomparable. Cannot be compared. And so we have a question here, like in verse 18, verse 25. That goes verse 18. Verse 25, look at it. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. We have the name of God here, the Holy One. It's his name. There's no the and there's no one. The word just says, says holy. Says holy. The Holy One is speaking. It's not just in essence, but in character. God is perfect morally in every single way. In essence and in character, God is perfect. And there's no one like me, he says. To whom will you compare me? Last time this was asked, Isaiah ridiculed idol worshipers. Now he's going to ridicule star worshipers. Those who worship the stars. The verse 26 is about. The word's not there, but it's clearly meant. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Referring to the stars. Now the Canaanites, their surrounding neighbors of Israel, they practiced star worship. Well, the Babylonians, their future captors, they were astrologers and they were immersed in star worship. They believed the constellations controlled the destinies of man. Israel was warned against worshiping the stars in Deuteronomy 4.19, and yet they were guilty of it again and again at this time in Israel's history. We see in an equivalent time in 2 Kings 17.16 and 21.3, the people would go after worshiping the gods of the heavens. But how can you worship these stars, God says? That's ridiculous. I created these. I bring them out by number. I call them by name. They are only in place because I made them, I named them, I put them there. They're not gods to be worshipped. I alone am to be worshipped, God says. You can't compare me. You can't compare me. The constellations the Babylonians believe were controlling the destinies of man were in fact controlled by God. What a beautiful picture this is. Just a poetic picture even of God's knowledge and reign. He knows each star by name. He's commanded each one to its specific place in the universe, and there it stays. Just like he controls our earth in orbit, he controls the position of each star. Pastor Raymond Ortland Jr. gives us some interesting facts to help us grasp God's greatness in relation to the stars. He says this about our solar system. He says, our solar system, which comprised of the sun, the moon, and the seven other um, the nine, excuse me, seven other planets, eight total, Pluto's no more. Um, sorry, Pluto. Uh, he, Raymond Ortland Jr. says this. He says, our solar system is inside the galaxy called the Milky Way. And it, this galaxy we live in is shaped like a spiral, a gigantic pinwheel spinning in the open expanse of space with our solar system rotating around the center once every million years or so. We lie about two-thirds of the way from the center of the galaxy in what might be considered the boondocks. The Milky Way itself is 104,000 light years across and contains over 100 billion stars. To count them one by one would take us over 3,000 years. According to the latest probings of the Hubble Space Telescope, there are hundreds of billions of galaxies 
in God's universe. And what we've described as just one. End quote, and ending the quote. Though they're innumerable to us, we cannot even fathom the number. God numbers the stars, knows them all by name. And if God, by his greatness and power, knows each star and does not miss a single one, how can we ever doubt that he knows you and me? How can we ever doubt that he knows what is taking place? We can, as humans, be numbered, roughly. Roughly 7.2 billion people last time I checked on this planet. The stars far greater than num- in number cannot be numbered, and yet God still knows them. He knows your name. He knows your location. He knows the intricacies of your life. God the Creator made and knows everything in His creation, the stars and you. You're not forgotten. Isaiah stresses here many times over that God is transcendent, but he does not leave it there as the famous mind Aristotle did. Aristotle took this transcendence of God to its logical conclusion and ended with a passionless, colorless force as the source behind mankind's existence. He labeled God the unmoved mover. Now, can't you just feel the warm fuzzies in that title, right? The unmoved mover. Well, if you only look at God's transcendence, this is the logical conclusion. But Aristotle, like so many others before and after him, have ignored that God is also a person. And he cares about people. Combine his transcendence and his personhood, and you've got the most benevolent, powerful, beautiful being that could ever possibly exist. That's our God. He's reached out of the heavens and he's touched this planet. He even came to live with us, to live among us, to experience what we experience and feel what we feel. And he willingly died here. Why? As the perfect sacrifice to atone for the sin of all who would believe. What Aristotle missed was the God-man, Jesus Christ. The transcendent descended upon the earth lived, died, and rose from the dead to conquer the death that we rightly fear. He conquered this death, and all who confess their sin and turn to him in faith will be saved. They will have eternal life, not eternal death. That's our God. His works are incomparable. His reign is incomparable, and his love is incomparable. That he would reach down and shepherd of people in love, bringing salvation from their sin and a right relationship with himself. What love. What grace. So, verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? Or, or why do you say, O church, and speak, O assembly? My way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded from my God. This question is the crux of Isaiah's message. It's the center point. It's why this whole discussion is even being broached because the people were doubting, were questioning, were saying, God doesn't see what's going on. He doesn't see the justice that I am due. It's escaping his notice. He doesn't know what's happening. With a God as great as ours, how can we possibly doubt what's going on? How can we possibly think God's ignoring what's right for us and what we need? The people of Israel were like a trick birthday candle that keeps relighting itself. They were continually thinking that God did not see their troubles or know their suffering. God would put out one fear and then more doubting. He'd work sovereignly work in one problem and then they'd doubt again. They doubted all the time. 
But is this also us? Is this you? Don't take your mind off who God is. Let his incomparable greatness overwhelm your heart and mind. It's his greatness that equips us to cease doubting and to confidently wait on him. It's this greatness that equips us to cease doubting and confidently wait on him. And that is our proper response. That is our proper response to his greatness, to cease doubting, to wait on him. To quote Bruce Oswald, commentator, he says, Thus Isaiah seems to say, In the light of what I have said, how can you believe God is ignoring you? Don't you understand? God is utterly other than we. He does not work on our our timetable. He has none of our limitations. But he is at work, and you can depend on him. This was their problem. Verse 27, they were doubters of God. They needed to stop. They needed a higher, loftier knowledge of God for greater confidence in him. That's what we've gotten this far. And there's some more indelible truths pressed upon us in verse 28. Look at verse 28 and 29. It says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. The solution is to relearn what we already know. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The information's long been available to us. The truth we Christians possess has come from outside of us. It's God's truth. It's always been there. God will never back out of his promises to you. He cares for you. Verses 28 and 29 remind us that God is everlasting. He's outside of your right now trials. He created you so he knows you intimately. He does not get tired, so he'll never postpone his plans or his purposes for you while he rests. And because he's everlasting, creator of all and tireless, his understanding outstrips ours by infinity and back. Because his understanding is so great, we don't always know what's going on. And we don't need to. In verse 29, He's the giver of power and strength to those who are spiritually faint. He's so good to meet us at our need. Those struggling with doubt in verse 27 are the ones who need to receive power and strength, and they will if they trust him. But will you trust him? Alec Motyer says, His ways belong to eternity, we to time. His vision is for the world, we are local. His ceaselessness keeps him always ahead of the point we have reached. Will you trust him? That's the essential meaning of wait in verse 31. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Wait, trust, patiently, confidently, expectantly. That's the key. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Even youths, even choice young men will faint and be exhausted. The cream of the crop will fall. Those relying on themselves, even the strongest of us, will fall. But they who wait on the Lord, they shall renew their strength and soar with wings like eagles. It's the one whose life is characterized by waiting on God, living with the tension of promises revealed and yet not fulfilled. 
It's a life of habitual expectation, patience, and trust in the Lord. It's knowing that his ways are better than our ways and then letting God do things his way and proclaiming him good the whole time. It's Philippians 3, 13 to 14, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead and pressing on toward the goal. It's those who waitingly trust wholly on the person of God and the salvation found only in his son, Jesus Christ, that shall run and not be weary, that shall walk and not faint. God's ways are not our own. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, there hides a smiling face. Let's pray. Oh, great God, move in us to show us who you are. Forgive my incomplete and weak presentation of you from this passage, Lord. Fill our minds with greater thoughts of you. Lift us up to behold your incomparable greatness in every way. God, you are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words. God, we cannot comprehend all you are. Help us to taste and see just in part who you are, Lord, to know that you are transcendent and outside, and yet you are personable and inside. God, help us to lean on you for everything to cast fear aside, doubt aside, to wait patiently and trust in you. Father, bring salvation to those who do not know you here, that they might trust in your Son for that salvation. God, bring calmness to those who are doubting or fearing you because of the circumstances of life. God, and those who are just in the comfort of the day, may they have a greater view of you and be ready and willing to trust you in all scenarios that come their way. You are great, Lord, and awesome to be praised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.